0: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. My name is Mickey. I'm a worship arts coordinator at Baylife Church.
1: And I'm Travis, and I'm the teaching pastor at Baylife Church.
0: And we want to welcome you to the Stone Table.
1: drag the space (laughs) heater into every single room in this house?
2: I
0: am. Yeah, it's cold.
1: It's a Florida winter.
0: It's a frigid Florida winter, okay? (laughs) It's
1: It's a little cold.
0: It's freezing. Okay, so for our listeners who have grown up in Florida or know what it's like to live in Florida at some point, you guys know that the Florida winters consist of very cold mornings Mm -hmm. right and then the sun goes up at the highest at noon and that goes right back to being 75 degrees yep and then when the sun goes back down it's back to freezing yes okay so i understand that there's a pattern here and i follow this pattern however it is morning time so it is now cold Mm -hmm. and the first thing i did when i woke up thinking oh my gosh i'm freezing and why, why should I suffer like this when That's we true. have a portable little mini space heater? So we,
1: we have the technology. We to, do. To solve it's this a problem. resource
0: that God has given us. So why wouldn't I use it?
1: Common grace. Yes.
0: <laughs> so yes, we are. Uh, it's not on right now because it makes mm-hmm. too much noise, um, but <laughs> it'll
1: be back on as soon as we're done recording.
0: It's true. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, my hope is that it just stays something like this all the way through to Christmas. Yeah, like I don't I don't need it to snow I don't I don't need any yeah. of that I just want it to be cold enough that I'm not sweating when I step outside on Christmas
0: that's true we were just talking about this last night about how if it could just last just a few more weeks it won't though because no. it's always humid on Christmas Eve and also Christmas. it's
1: 2020 and, and we can't have nice things in no. 2020
0: no nice things <laughs> so the
1: thing with my parents is that they always want to have a fire on Christmas because the this tree where they unwrap the presents is mm-hmm. in the, the room with a fireplace mm-hmm. and so it doesn't matter how hot it is outside if if it's christmas my parents will turn the air conditioning down as low as it'll go <laughs> yes. and then light the fire so we can have sort of the christmas aesthetic
0: yeah but i feel like we've done that once or twice for like autumn
1: mm-hmm.
3: yeah. i think
0: one time we were just like it's not fall ish enough around here let's just turn down the ac as low and pretend as it'll it's go fall yeah yep light some pumpkin spice candles just pretend
1: yeah we've done it yeah i I guess it's kind of a a low family tradition at this Mm -hmm, point i mean mm -hmm. we live in florida so we kind of fake holidays yeah because it doesn't ever feel like the actual holiday
0: you got to do what you got to do honestly yeah it is what it is
1: (laughs) so speaking of frigid weather Mm -hmm. our guest is coming from a place that is much 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 colder (gasps) than florida this is true so today we're joined by dr carmen imes who's the associate professor of old testament and the program coordinator of bible and theology at Prairie College in Canada.
0: Canada. She's our first guest from Canada. She
1: is our first Canadian guest and uh, we're super excited to be talking with her today about her book Bearing God's Name.
0: Yes she is amazing you guys Uh, and interestingly enough she's a dual citizen and she didn't know that until she moved to Canada I believe. (laughs)
1: Yeah yeah she moved to Canada specifically for this role as an Old Testament professor and found out that she'd been a citizen all along. Yes
0: through her dad so yeah she is just really incredible and we Mm -hmm. just have a really rich conversation and, and we really Start with her journey um, and where she ended up with Old Testament scholarship. She did missions work. Right. Um, she had been teaching, so she is. Um, she's just a really fabulous person, and her book "Bearing God's Name" is incredible. And Travis, you guys actually use this as a baseline for your Exodus uh, series on the Ten Commandments, right? You know?
1: Yeah. If you were at Bay Life in the last couple months, as we walked through the Ten Commandments, her book was kind of central to the research Mark and I did as we put this series together, and. Kind of the big, big thesis statement of her book is that the second commandment, if you're following the Catholic math, Mm -hmm. third third commandment (laughs) if you're following the, the reformed math, this thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain Yep, it is not so much about what you can and can't say as much as it is about bearing God's name in the same way that the high priest bears the names of the tribes of Israel on yes. his breastplate. And we kind of unpack that throughout the episode. So if that's making your your, your head spin a little bit, <laughs> it'll make more Fear sense <laughs> as the conversation goes. But, but when you really grasp this insight, and I think she's really onto something with it, mm, it unlocks yes. a whole different way of reading the Ten Commandments and understanding is israel's vocation Mm -hmm. as a nation and and really what it means for us as christians so i'm super excited to share this episode i was so excited to get to talk to her after we had just read her book as a teaching team and Mm -hmm. and been using it to teach these sermons and so it's a really rich conversation and we can't wait to share it with you
0: so for baylife church i'm mickey
1: and i'm travis
0: and this is the stone table So, Carmen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. We are so excited to have you, and we're really thankful for your time. Uh, You are actually our first guest who is living in Canada. So we've got to ask, as we kind of get to know you and our listeners get to know a little bit about you, what are some of the must-visit places in your area? So we know you teach at Prairie College, so Mm -hmm. we're wondering if Three Hills is kind of your region, if that's
2: your area, and if so... Where should we go?
1: Post COVID, yes. obviously. Post COVID. Yeah.
2: Post COVID, right. You're you're not actually allowed to come right now. Yeah. <laughs> we
1: can't go anywhere at the moment. Right.
2: But. <laughs> but you could get on Google Earth, I suppose, and sort of troll the street. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what you can see. Uh Three Hills is a very small town. We have about thirty four hundred residents. Wow. Oh, okay. And um I, my daughter's high school was larger than that in wow. Oregon. So Man. So yeah, it's small. We don't have, we're not really a destination for people from out of town unless they're coming for the college. Mm. Um, It is a bit of a regional hub because we have tiny towns around us. Um, So, you know, we've got a store, an ice arena, Mm. a, a hospital Okay. <laughs> okay. The so yeah, but right. if, you, if you really want to do touristy things, you've got to drive a little far, further away. So we sure. have, there's the Tyrell, I think it's called the Royal Tyrell Dinosaur Museum wow. in Drumheller, which is about 45 minutes away. And it's got lots of like full-scale dinosaurs. There's dinosaurs that were discovered here in Alberta, okay. like wow. dinosaur bones. Mm-hmm. So I think it's called the Albertosaurus. Really? Wow. <laughs> that's, that's
1: so inventive. So, that's perfect. If you're
2: a dinosaur fan, this is a fun place to visit. And then if you love the mountains, about two and a half hours from here mm-hmm. is Banff and Jasper National Parks. And wow. they are amazing.
1: Really? Okay.
2: <gasps> that sounds our speed.
1: Yeah. yeah. Mountains are a thing. We're, we're living in Florida, but... but- we're mountain mm-hmm. people. Um, yes, we are.
2: Yeah, I'm from Colorado, so I'm oh, a mountain of course. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> and here you can't see the mountains. We're surrounded by wheat fields. Mm. So oh, okay. That, gotcha. That part's a little sad for me. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I, I was actually <laughs> going to ask you, were you originally from Canada or did you end up in Canada through a chain of events?
2: Yeah, a chain of events was applying for a job at Prairie College. So I was born and raised in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I went to college in Oregon, met my husband there, and we've lived in lots of places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I applied for the job here at Prairie and when I came up to interview, made the startling discovery that I'm a dual citizen. What? What? So You've got to unpack that that
1: for us. How did that how did that happen?
2: Yeah, so it turns out that the Canadian government's very generous with its citizenship. So Mm -hmm. I I was born in Colorado, but but my dad was born in British Columbia. Okay. Mm. He came to the States for college and met and married my mom. And apparently if you're second generation Canadian born between certain years, then mm-hmm. you automatically get citizenship. Wow. So, wow. There amazing. you go. That was a fun discovery. Yeah. That's
1: um, so, so cool. we, we can't wait to kind of get into talking about your book, bearing God's name. Um, but, but, before we do that, um, I'd love to just talk a little bit about your journey. Uh, you mentioned that you've kind of moved all over the place. I think in your book, mm-hmm. you said you've moved, f- was it 14, 14 times over the yep. course of your life? Um, <laughs> yep. and one um, am-
2: 14, no, 14 times just since I got married. Oh
1: my gosh. Wow. So more
2: years ago. Yeah. Wow.
1: <laughs> So one of those moves was uh, a stint as a missionary in the Philippines and I'd love to That's just it. hear a little bit about how God brought you there and and what that experience was like.
2: Yeah, I felt a strong call to missions when I was a child. So about 12 years old, I really was convinced that God was calling me into missions. So I went off to Bible college to study missions and I thought I'd be a Bible translator. And so when my husband and I were discerning, you know, what's next after college, we were we were very open and and experience exploring mission opportunities. And we decided we really liked SIM, which is an interdenominational church planting mission. And we basically didn't feel a call to a particular place. So we went to SIM and said, here's how we're wired. Here's what we feel like we could do. Where do you need these skills? My husband wow. is a gifted administrator, so he wanted to, to do logistics for a team somewhere. And I my hope was to do Bible teaching. So yeah. we needed a place where it would be okay for a woman to teach Bible. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And
2: we we also had a heart for Muslims, which seemed like kind of an impossible combination, because in what Muslim context is a woman going to be able to teach Bible? Right. So when we came to SIM and we sort of laid out, like, here's how we're wired and what we feel called to do, where where could you use us? They suddenly realized the Philippines was a unique um, confluence of all the things we thought God had been doing in us. Mm -hmm. So the Philippines uh, has had female presidents. It's a matriarchal society. Uh, Women teaching Bible was not a problem there but SIM's main outreach there was among the Muslim communities. Wow. So, it was a wonderful convergence of the things God had done in us. Wow. And we weren't there very long. It's it didn't work out for us to stay long-term, but we had two and a half very transformative years. Wow. That's incredible.
1: And it sounds so cool. Providential in so many ways that yeah. each of these things God kind of stirred up in you and your husband were were perfectly matched with that part of the world.
2: Yeah. And, and when I say transformative years, I don't mean we did such a transforming work there. God did such a transforming work in us. Mm. Mm. Um, It was spiritually a really dry season. And, uh, and many of the things we thought we were going there to do didn't, didn't pan out, but Mm. God did deep work in us. And so, yeah, yeah, he doesn't waste anything.
1: No,
0: never. Wow. So we wanted to ask, kind of coming out of that uh, stage of your life and that phase and that season, how did you go from missionary work to the world of
2: Old Testament scholarship? Good good question. Um, I discovered in college that God had wired me for teaching. So as I mentioned, when we went to the Philippines, it was with the idea that eventually I would teach Bible. Mm. So I actually started my seminary degree in the Philippines and took my first couple of classes there. And I'd always loved the Old Testament, even as a child. I loved the book of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. Um, So so, I'm reading
1: Isaiah right right now, now. (laughs) and I may need your help because it's blowing my mind and I have to write a (laughs) seminary paper on it.
2: Oh, fun. (laughs) Yes. Isaiah is a mind-blowing book. So, so much rich stuff there. Yeah, Yeah. so so when we came back to the States, I just kept chipping away at a degree, um, Mm. hoping that eventually I would move on to a PhD so that I could be qualified to teach at the college level. Um, that dream was sort of uh, birthed in me in college. And I imagined that I would be a missionary for 20 years first and then do that. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it worked out. So wow! instead I, I, I uh, t- took a faster track to old Testament scholarship and it's been really a wonderful journey and a wonderful, a wonderful um, venue in which to do ministry Yeah, because I'm, I'm getting to help people discover the Old Testament, discover the Bible, and deepen their relationship with God. Mm. So it's still kind of like mission work, right? Yeah, totally.
1: Well, so I'd love to talk just a little bit more about your love for the Old Testament. Uh, I know mm-hmm. that, especially recently, among evangelicals, there's been this uh, this attempt to kind of unhook us from the Old Testament and kind of push it aside. And you mentioned this a little bit in your book, yeah. Uh, and and I think the the intention there is. I don't want to say it's noble because I don't agree with it, but it's at least understandable because the Old Testament mm-hmm. is a challenging part of scripture mm-hmm. and, it, and it contains it a lot of, like I said, my, mind-bending portions of the Bible. So yep. I guess I'm just wondering for you, as you were studying the Old Testament and really falling in love with this part of scripture, were there were there any reliable guides or theologians or people that you mm-hmm. looked to as you tried to make sense of kind of the complicated world of the first half of the Bible?
2: Yeah. Well, I had some amazing professors in college who I should mention, Ray Lubeck and Carl Kutz, were both just amazing in helping me connect with the Old Testament and helping it come alive for me, even though I loved it. I didn't always know what to do with it. Yeah. And they just showed me how it was a beautiful tapestry of texts that were talking to and about each other. Mm. And it was a, a great journey. You're probably familiar with the work of the Bible project. Yes. And yeah. So Tim and John were also students at Multnomah in those same years that I was there. Tim was a classmate of mine and John was one of my first students. So, (laughs) yeah. So anyway, we were were all, all three of us were influenced by Ray Lubeck and Carl Kutz. But Mm -hmm. in terms of like written like authors who've written about the Old Testament that have really helped me. I would say Daniel Block
3: yes, has yeah. been
2: so helpful. He was my doctoral supervisor.
3: Okay.
2: Um, and he, anything he writes is gold and worth your time.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Chris Wright is another favorite of mine. He's just really helped me connect with the mission of God yeah. and the. The Grand Narrative of Scripture. Uh, and he wrote the foreword to my book. Which so, was yeah, so that was one of the
1: things that got me really excited to read your book because The <laughs> yeah. Mission of God, I think you say this in, in your book, The Mission of God is yeah. one of your favorite books of all time. Yes. And it's also it one of my favorite books. It is yes. just the best so treatment good. of the unity of scripture. So yeah, Chris Wright is great.
2: It is. And yet it's a thick book. And so not a lot of Christians are going to pick it up and read it. Like fewer Christians will, will pick it up and read it. And so I really wanted to write a book that would help introduce a wider audience to Mm, these ideas. So Chris Wright, um, Sandy Richter does amazing work in old Testament. And then John Walton Mm, has also just really helped me with some gnarly old Testament problems.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. John Walton is also a, a fantastic scholar. The stuff he's done on the early chapters of Genesis is, is really, really good and insightful. Yeah.
0: Yep, so helpful. So, Carmen, you have just recently published the book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And we actually used your book as kind of the basis for a recent series that we did at our church on Exodus. Uh, We went through... um, how much of exodus do we go through so we like we, a, a chunk
1: so we, we took about a year and yes. and wow. the last uh well the last two months have been the ten Commandments yep. And so, nice. so we did like yeah, we, a we've little... just gotten to the ten Commandments yeah yes
0: and so we used your book as a basis for that uh, little section within our series um because we you know we think that uh, people many people struggle with our understanding of uh, the relevance mm-hmm. of the ten Commandments for today and yeah. often it's kind of written off as part of the old copy covenant uh, which is all about the law and mm-hmm. we get really fixated on the new covenant which is all about grace uh, but i think that's kind of a misunderstanding and so mm-hmm. we we really appreciated your book because it clarified so many of those misunderstandings and it was just so eye-opening Yeah, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the things that i really loved about your book is that you draw attention to the location of where the 10 words first appear in the story of exodus mm-hmm. so can you yeah. kind of explain to our listeners what the significance um is of that location and how it can help yeah. us think about the relationship between law and grace.
2: Yeah, it it doesn't help us that the Ten Commandments are so popular that they have often been posted on the wall or posted on monuments mm-hmm. in isolation from their context. They're just like snipped out of the biblical story and posted. And so we miss the, the narrative context that Exodus presents to us. And I think it's tremendously uh, helpful to notice where they occur in the book so the book of exodus has a lot of things going on in it and you don't get the ten Commandments until chapter 20 right before yeah. before the ten Commandments the people are slaves in Egypt God brings them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with all these plagues and he leads them through the wilderness and then they come to the mountain and then he gives them the ten Commandments mm-hmm. and so if we if we really grasp this I think it can help, combat one of the most common misunderstandings about them. And that is many Christians think that the 10 commandments were Israel's way of earning their salvation. Mm, Like this is how they become right with God or earn, earn their future status or something. But God does not show up in Egypt. He doesn't send Moses to the border of Egypt and say to the people, Hey guys, guess what? Good news. I can get you out of here. All you have to do is Mm -hmm. agree To these 10 stipulations, if you sign at the bottom line, I'll get you out. It's not a prerequisite for them being rescued by God's grace.
3: Mm.
2: He rescues them first, not on the basis of anything they've done. And then he brings them to Sinai and he says, now here's how I want you to live as a free people. So these are not a prerequisite for salvation. They are an invitation to a a life of freedom as a covenant community. Mm. Yeah.
1: That's really good. And, and one of the things that you I think is kind of central to the book comes before the the people of Israel get to the Ten Commandments, uh, and it's that Moses receives the revel- revelation of God's name. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we actually had Wes Hill on the show, who's a New Testament scholar in Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. and he's just written this book on the Lord's Prayer, and we were having a conversation about the line, Hallowed be thy name. Mm -hmm. And he was telling us that as he was researching this part of the book, it sent him on this like massive journey of just the significance of God's name throughout the scriptures, and and the way that all of the Old Testament and New Testament texts kind of come together to give us mm. a picture of God's name. And so yeah. I guess yeah. I'm just wondering, in this particular portion, when God finally reveals his name to the people mm. of Israel, what what's the significance of what's going on here? Why is this such a big deal, and how does it help us see the rest of Exodus and the Ten Commandments?
2: Yeah, it's such a big deal because the Israelites live in a time when when other nations are worshiping lots of different gods. So, you, so just by saying God... You haven't specified who you're talking about. Right. And when Yahweh appears to Moses at Sinai and says, "Here's this is my name, Yahweh, that and I'm inviting you to call me by this name, he's distinguishing himself from all the other gods. He's inviting Moses into a personal relationship with him. They're going to be on a first name basis. Mm-hmm. And mm. in that time period, especially in ancient Egypt, there was a sense in which if, a, if you knew the actual real name of a god, then that would give you some kind of power right. mm. or access to that God's power. And so there's texts that that talk about God's trying to figure out each other's real names because they're trying to access that power. Wow. Okay. And God doesn't play hard to get. He just says to Moses, here's what I want you to call me, right. which is essentially a risky move on his part mm. because he's, he's making himself and his power available to the people. Um, so it's a, it's a really profound moment and yeah. I haven't seen Wesley Hill's new book yet. So I'm really curious to, to hear how he talks about the Lord's prayer. Yeah. Um, and that phrase, hallowed be your name. It's really yeah. good.
1: Yeah. I definitely recommend it. His, uh, his insights are, are super helpful.
2: Um, yeah, but and I
0: just love the way that in the book you went into the different names of of the gods that the, the pagan gods that people were worshiping at the time and how it was so important to be distinct about mm-hmm. Yahweh's name, about how yes. it's not quite the same as Elohim, it's not the same as right. Adonai. Uh, right. And I just love how uh, graciously informative that portion of your book was when hmm. you kind of cleared it up, you know, and, and just yeah. cleared the differences up in those names and why why it's so important that we we understand that we have been invited to know Yahweh's mm-hmm. name. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was just such a powerful, yeah. powerful part. Um, cool. And so the second half of the book of Exodus uh, is largely rules and regulations, right? Someone can, mm-hmm. anyone can just pick up Exodus and kind of look through. And even the, the Torah, the rest of the Torah, we look through and, and it's like, These are a lot of things, lots of rules, lots of regulations. And like you said, if we read them out of context, we don't really understand, right? Because these are parts of scriptures that we kind of just want to skip over but Mm -hmm. that's not how Moses saw this portion of scripture. And that's not how the older uh, and later Old Testament writers Mm -hmm. viewed this, right? And I think of Psalm 119 that you mentioned in your book Mm -hmm. that the author of this poem, the Psalm writes it as a poem about how he delights in the law. And so clearly they are understanding something about the law that we sometimes might not when we kind of get intimidated by these rules. So what is it that they're understanding that we might be missing? Hmm.
2: Yeah. Excellent question. I think we need to put ourselves in the sandals of ancient people mm-hmm. and see if we can kind of sense what are they anxious about. What are they? Um, what are the problems and fears that they have that they're trying to overcome? And in an ancient context where there are multiple gods, or you think there are multiple gods, mm-hmm. and your primary concern is survival, the gods. It's it's really important for ancient people to have a positive relationship with the gods and not do anything to make the gods angry mm-hmm. because if you make them angry then they might withhold rain from you they might right. um, they might make it so that you can't bear children or that your children die in their infancy or whatever so so people had ancient people had a, a strong impulse to try to make the gods happy right. and yet they didn't have revelation of what it was exactly that the gods wanted of them so there was this deep-seated anxiety Anytime something went wrong, oh no, we must have made some deity angry. Which Mm -hmm. deity was it? And what was it that we did? And what's the remedy for that? Mm. And so their lives and their religious lives revolved around trying to figure this out and negotiate this very mysterious process. And yet Yahweh comes to Moses and says, Here's what I expect of you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to spell it all out. I'm not going to make you guess how to please me. In fact, I want to come and live in your neighborhood. And because my holy presence among you is both powerful and dangerous, if you're in a state of sin, it's dangerous. There has to be like boundaries around God's presence and boundaries around their behavior and the the state that they're in so that they can comfortably live in God's presence. Mm. And so the laws strike us as odd for I think a number of reasons, but one is our failure to understand ancient anxieties. And another is, um, is our presupposition that I've already talked about that. We think the laws are for earning salvation and Mm -hmm. boy, that's a lot of stuff to have to do Mm -hmm. when in fact, most of the laws have to do with God wants to move into your neighborhood. Here's how to live so that that works well. Right. Mm. So just like if you had any dignitary moving into your neighborhood things things would have to change you know if the if the president you know we're we're about probably 2 months away from a presidential transition or 6 mm-hmm. weeks away from a presidential transition in the US so if joe biden was going to decide actually i don't want the white house to be in washington dc i think i wanted to have it in florida yeah (laughs) um let's 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 move the center of government um to y'all's neighborhood yeah like that that would mean you would have to change a lot about how your how your city works yeah right and um sort of reorient to having power and in proximity
3: yeah yeah.
2: And so th- this this is that same idea only on steroids because of course <laughs> God is is holy and worthy of our worship unlike yeah. presidents and so he his power is is something to be grateful for but it's also something to be careful about. Mm. So a lot of the laws given to Israel have to do with um Ritual purity, which enables them to enter into the tabernacle or the the courtyard and perform sacrifices, that sort of thing, yeah. um, and that that all feels really foreign to us. It's a cross cultural experience to read the Old Testament, for sure. Yeah, and we don't always appreciate that. We we often think think of the Bible as this leather bound book with our name on it that mm-hmm. drops from heaven um, to answer our questions, but it isn't answering our questions directly. It's answering the questions of ancient people. And so we have to do that work of kind of cross-cultural learning Mm. in order to fully appreciate it.
1: One of the other things I think of is, is this consistent impulse throughout the Old Testament for God to dwell mm-hmm. among His people, and yeah, and as we kind of come into the Advent season and the Christmas season, it just mm-hmm. draws my mind to even what John says about the Word being made flesh and tabernacling among us. Yes, right. Yes. That this is this is all drawing us ultimately towards the incarnation, um, that mm-hmm. God's uh, temporary dwelling among His people in in the camp of Israel or in the temple is drawing us forward towards you know, that the end of the Bible when the dwelling place of yes. God is now with man in Revelation. Yes.
2: Yeah. And the New Testament authors do not do away with instructions about how to live in a way that pleases God, right? Right. We, we think, oh, the law's over. That's Old Covenant, but we're in the New Covenant. Have you looked at Paul's letters? About <laughs> right. half of every letter is instructions on how not to screw this thing up. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. All right. of James,
1: right, oh, like, is like, yeah, this. You, yeah.
2: right. You belong to God. Here's what it looks like to live as his people. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. And that's what we're getting at Sinai is we're getting instructions for how to live as God's people Mm. because he chose them out of slavery and set them free. And not only that, it's not just like they have this now freedom to do what they want or Mm -hmm. that sort of personal freedom, but as a nation, God has set them apart to be his representatives among all nations. So they have been tasked with demonstrating his character to a watching world. And we need all these laws because there's a lot about God that he wanted other people to see. Mm. And if they lived no differently than their pagan neighbors, people would miss out on understanding who Yahweh really was. And that same thing is true for us as New Testament believers. Yeah. We bear the name of Jesus. We are his representatives to a watching world. Therefore, it matters how I drive. Mm. It matters how I spend my money and my time. It matters how I treat people. It matters whether I cheat on my taxes. All of that matters because I'm someone who bears God's name.
0: Yeah. Mm so true. And you kind of gave this comparison in your book. You said that the Lord's instructions at Sinai or something in something you mentioned as house rules for Yahweh's family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's this quote in there um, with the comparison you made. We don't have families uh, talking about families in the context of having children doing chores and all that. You said we don't have families so that we can do chores and have rules, but we do chores and have house rules to facilitate life in a family because that's Mm -hmm. how we, that's, how we function as a family. That's how Mm -hmm. we work together and it's how we represent our family. And I think that just so perfectly just encompasses the value and the significance of God's people Mm -hmm. keeping his every command, right? Because we do bear his name. We bear his image. So it really does matter how we function Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. a family within our family, within our Christian um, Mm -hmm. families and churches. And it also matters how we present God's name to the world. So I, I, I really loved that.
1: Well, and I think the scriptures pick up that kind of familial language again and again, right? Israel is my firstborn, uh, is is what Yahweh says. And then Jesus is our elder brother, right? And God Mm -hmm. is our father. Like it's, and and salvation is adoption, right? It's all bound up in this familial imagery.
2: When we dig into scripture carefully, it becomes less and less possible to think about salvation as a solo act, or as an individual thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just about me and Jesus and my personal destiny or my personal, like existential sense of, of belonging or whatever. It's, it's God inviting us into a community of faith, Mm -hmm. becoming his sons and daughters, becoming brothers and sisters with one another. Um, And all of the laws are contributing to that picture because what I do actually affects my brothers and sisters in Mm -hmm. the faith community. Mm -hmm.
1: Something else that I found really insightful in your book is the way that you kind of talk about the difference between the way that ancient law functioned as opposed to modern mm. laws, uh, because there's so many laws uh, following yes. the book of Exodus and Leviticus, and, and yes. it's easy to look at them all and go, oh my gosh, how can anybody even remember them all, let alone keep them? Mm. Um, mm. And how do you enforce all of this? Right. Mm-hmm. But that kind of is, again, it's it's us entering into a different context with a modern framework. So what is the difference between the way we treat laws now as opposed to how they functioned in the ancient Near East?
2: Yeah, great question. There's been a lot of research done on this topic. John Walton is somebody who's written about this. He was my sort of first entry into this conversation, um, but others have as well. Um, So we because we're in a different cultural context the risk is always that we'll just import whatever we think is going on into the bible when we see Mm -hmm. something so when we read about old testament law we think oh laws i know what those are we have laws in my town if you speed if you know a certain number of miles an hour over the speed limit and you get pulled over there's a particular fine attached to that violation um and i'm i would have to go to traffic court to to you know contest it or to pay my Mm -hmm. fine or whatever um, but ancient law scholars are now realizing didn't function that way. It was not like a code of statutes that was like on the books that, that the police enforced mm. rather um, the, the making of lists of laws was an exercise in scribal wisdom where Kings and their courts would, would compile these lists of laws in order to demonstrate how thoughtful they were, how wise they were, that mm. they that they could anticipate all these different kinds of scenarios and know a good way to respond in those scenarios. Hmm. They, they could know how to have a, a just and equitable society. Um, however, that was defined in ancient times. Right. So it's not as though ancient people thought laws, law obedience was optional or that, you know, the, the sure. laws in the Bible are just optional. It, it's not that, but ancient people didn't didn't apply laws in in the same fixed ways that we do today. Gotcha. So okay. they, they weren't bound by certain penalties or bound by certain um, certain statutes. Like there was there was more freedom to kind of take into consideration all the factors that might mm-hmm. have mm. precipitated a certain action, and whether or not that person's repentant and right. And there may be situations that even fall outside of the code, and just because there's not a specific law written about that Mm -hmm, doesn't prevent judges from ruling on that particular case. Mm -hmm. So the laws were more of like a source or a seed than they were a kind of a fixed final word. Hmm. And I think we see this with biblical laws at Sinai. um, God first gives Moses the 10 commandments. And then in the following chapters, he gives a whole bunch of other specific ways of living those out but then at the end of chapter 23 he says see i will send my angel ahead of you to prepare your way and he's going to like teach you along the way so god right away recognizes that he hasn't said everything they need to know mm. they're going to need ongoing guidance yeah. it's not just like they leave check they leave sinai with a checklist of here's all the things you have to do and then you're good
0: right yeah
2: um and and indeed we get more laws in Leviticus, and then more laws in Numbers, and then more mm-hmm. laws in, in Deuteronomy. Because right. in each different life situation, there are there are new situations that arise that they need to respond to, and mm-hmm. so they, they they go to God and say, "How how should we handle this?" And He hands down more wisdom for them. Yeah. And those those laws don't again become fixed for use only in court scenarios, but they were. They were the means for people to mull over and meditate on what does it look like to live well as His covenant people.
3: Mm.
1: That's really helpful. That's so yeah. Good. So in many ways, one of the things that delights the the Old Testament authors about the law is it's almost a revelation mm-hmm. of Yahweh's wisdom. Right. Yeah. He's, he's yes, giving them it is a sign of of His knowledge and
2: and that's a gift. It is. Yeah. Yep. And in ancient times, if you wanted to show off how wise you were, then you Mm. made long lists of things. And so (laughs) part of, part of what makes Solomon, part of what gives Solomon the reputation of being the wisest man who ever lived is that he could, he could tell you all about all the different animal species and he could Mm. tell you all about Mm. different, you know, he collected thousands of proverbs and, and there was a sense in which if you made a list and it was an exhaustive list, that would show just how wise you were. Mm. We don't, typically think of list, I mean, we, we didn't, <laughs> nobody asked Joe Biden or Donald Trump, <laughs> um, What's her to, list to produce a have? list. <laughs> right, yeah. Show us your lists and then we'll know how to vote. Right, right, right? Right, <laughs> it's yeah. not how we operate. We want we want them to debate or think on their feet. But, right, right. but for ancient kings, if they had a list like Hammurabi's law code mm-hmm. is his demonstration of what a wise ruler he is. Mm. We have no evidence that those laws were actually enforced in Assyrian law courts. Uh, instead, it was probably like imperial propaganda. To say, look, look at what a great king. Look how smart I am. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's so So funny. I didn't know that.
1: That's so helpful, right? Because that's bringing us from our modern conception of laws, Mm -hmm. which actually are a hindrance to us really reading the Old Testament for all it's worth and kind of putting us in the framework of the people Mm -hmm. who received the words on Sinai. Totally. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the 10 words themselves and the Mm -hmm. the 10 commandments, I guess, as they're kind of called in modern English. Um, so a lot of times people will talk about there being two different tables of the law. There's sort of the first half that refers to God. And then the second Mm -hmm. half is how we treat our neighbors. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that you argue in this book that, that, was mind blowing to me because I'd been steeped in that perspective mm-hmm. uh, is yeah. that most people are. <laughs> and, but, but I, I, like, I gratefully received the correction. I was like, yeah. no, mm-hmm. this makes perfect sense. And and you kind of argue that that's not really how covenant keeping works. It's not that you can kind of yeah. divide these laws neatly. So can you unpack that a little yes. bit?
2: Yeah, I'll say, first of all, I don't think the commands were divided on two different stones. Mm-hmm. So some people come up with this idea of dividing between vertical and horizontal commands as a way of trying to explain why Moses comes down from Sinai with two tablets, Mm -hmm. two two stone tablets. Um, But I would say he's just participating in a covenant as it is expressed in ancient times. And treaties between two parties would always have duplicate copies of the treaty etched in stone, Mm -hmm. one for each party. Mm -hmm. So when Moses comes down with two tablets, it would have been two stone tablets with all 10 commandments on each one. So they would have been duplicates. Mm -hmm. And the people would have seen right away, oh, we've got stone treaty tablets we have just entered into a covenant or a treaty mm-hmm. with Yahweh. So that would have been a big deal. So I think part of our impulse to divide the commands is because we don't understand how ancient treaties work. Mm. So so I'd say two duplicate copies, but I still wouldn't want to com- divide the commands into two right. categories, right. even on one tablet, right? It's right. not like front side is about God and the back side <laughs> <Yeah>. is about, <laughs> yeah. about right. your neighbor. And the reason why is because the covenant pertains to the entire community and their loyal worship of Yahweh. Mm. And so anything that, so let's say for a moment that we're part of ancient Israel, we're at Sinai. Moses has just come down with these commands for us. Let's say that I decide eh, I'm not so interested in Yahweh. I'd really like to, to uh, worship the God Ra from Egypt. Mm-hmm. My false worship or my, um, apostasy, really, my false worship, a worship of a false God, or my um, failure to worship Yahweh as the one true God, actually is not just an issue between me and God. It puts my entire community at risk. Mm. Because now false worship is happening in the camp so that if God is going to live in our neighborhood and there's false worship in the neighborhood, now we're all at risk. And we see this, um, we see examples of this in the Old Testament when the people first enter into the promised land in Joshua. Um, I think it's Joshua chapter 7 where they've just fought against Jericho mm. and they were supposed to devote everything in the city to God, which meant it was off limits for them. But there's this one dude who sees something shiny in the rubble and he just thinks, what a shame. I can't just let that sit there and rot. I got to take it home. So he takes this beautiful robe and these bars of gold and he brings them home and buries them under his tent. And the next battle that the Israelite army goes to fight, they lose. And then they realize, like any good ancient person would realize, "Uh-oh, we've done something to anger our God. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we would have won that battle." So, what was it that we did? And they search the community and discover that Achan has violated God's command to devote everything to Him, and He's yeah. taken something home. So, even though the thing he took was only personal, and and he's only putting it in his own tent, the entire community suffered mm-hmm. for his disobedience. And that's why I think it's so dangerous. For us to think of our faith as individual or solitary, mm, mm-hmm. because my obedience to any one of the ten commands actually affects the entire covenant community. Mm. Um, so, so the whether it's worship of of a false god or whether it's stealing something, if I if I murder my fellow Israelite. Mm -hmm. It's not just an affront to that Israelite. It's not just like a horizontal issue. Mm -hmm. That Israelite is a covenant member of Yahweh. That is someone Yahweh has pledged to protect. Mm. And so, therefore, I'm violating the sanctity of God's treasured possession. So, that's a vertical violation as well as horizontal. So, I just think there's no way to separate the two from each other. All ten of them, our obedience to all ten is... Has direct influence on our relationship with God, and our obedience to all ten has direct influence on our relationships with each other. Mm-hmm.
1: You know the example that you use in the book that kind of drove that home for me was David's response after the the his affair with Bathsheba and yep. the murder of mm-hmm. her husband, where he says, "Against you and you alone have I sinned." Um, mm-hmm. Well, he's he's broken a lot of the commandments in what people would call the second table of the yes. law, right? And yes. yet he he's treating it as though he's he he's, mm-hmm. hasn't just sinned against his neighbor, but he's really sinned against Yahweh. Right. So it's all so, yeah. so yep. knit together that you can't you can't pull yeah. it apart neatly like that.
2: Yes, lust and murder and adultery were all sins against God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true.
0: Yep. And I know we touched on this a little bit before, but I've just got to say again that one of the most helpful parts of your book was when you discussed the meaning of the second commandment, that you shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. And just kind of talking through what it means to bear the name of Yahweh and and how Mm -hmm. important, how valuable that is. And I think oftentimes this is kind of seen as a prohibition against language, right? So we're told Mm -hmm. don't curse don't right. take the Lord's right. name in vain, which is yep. wise, right? You definitely right. say in the book, it's not a good idea to, yeah. it's very dangerous to <laughs> it's, be. It's
1: not best practices. No, it's for def- sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but that might not be the best way to interpret this commandment. It's not quite so right. literal. So, but if you read the rest of Exodus, it kind of helps us better understand that. So how can mm-hmm. we read the rest of Exodus to kind of give us a better understanding of what exactly this commandment is asking of us?
2: Yes, good. This is the heart of my book, as you can see from the title, Bearing God's Name, mm-hmm. um, and it was the subject of my doctoral dissertation, so I spent five years studying this command, mm-hmm. and I came away really convinced that it's not prohibiting a certain kind of speech, but um, in Hebrew, the command says, you shall not carry the name of Yahweh or God in vain, or bear the name of Yahweh or God in vain, and most interpreters have come to that and said, well, that doesn't really make sense. There must be something else going on here because we don't really carry names. But right there in close proximity to this command are the instructions for what the high priest is supposed to wear. Mm -hmm. And once the tabernacle is built and Aaron is appointed as high priest, he's supposed to wear these elaborate garments. He's the most elaborately dressed Israelite. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. on his uh, front, on his chest, he has this special pouch with gemstones bearing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's 12 gemstones, each one's inscribed with one name. And it tells us in Exodus 28, 29, and so Aaron shall bear the names of, of the sons of Israel before Yahweh. And so there we have the same phrase used, bearing the names Mm -hmm. that we have from Exodus chapter 20, verse seven, that we shall not bear the name of Yahweh in vain. And Aaron also has on his forehead, this gold medallion that's inscribed with Yahweh's name. It says, holy belonging to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. So he has Yahweh's name on his forehead. He has the tribal names on his chest and on his shoulders. And he's supposed to, bear the name. So he's physically, literally carrying them, Mm
3: -hmm. but he's
2: also like a model Israelite. He's, he's like a visual model of what's true of the entire nation. Yeah. Because God says in Exodus 19 verses four through six, that the Israelites are a kingdom of priests, So even though they don't all actually serve as priests in the temple, he's appointed them as his representatives among the nations. They have a priestly role. So what Aaron wears is a a picture of what's true about every single Israelite, Mm. namely they bear the name of Yahweh, uh, Mm. that other nations are supposed to look at them to find out what Yahweh is like, which is why we have all these laws, as we already talked about. They are demonstrating God's character to a watching world so it's a it's a privilege that they belong to him he's put his name on them and claimed them as his own but it's also a responsibility mm. yeah. it, it implies yes. a a particular vocation in the world it's not just a choose your own adventure but you are God's ambassadors you yeah. bear his name
1: so that reminds me of Kind of the conversation that we had with Wes last week as mm-hmm. we were talking about uh, hallowing the name of the Lord, because ultimately yes. God stamps his name afresh on us in mm-hmm. baptism. Yes, Um, he does. You're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Peter tells us that we've been made a kingdom of priests, right? And so Mm -hmm. this commandment almost has like a a New Testament resonance as well.
2: It does. It does. And I think um, my take on the Lord's prayer is that when Jesus prays, hallowed be your name, he's actually committing himself Mm. to the hallowing of God's name. You know, we we don't use the word hallow very often. To make God's name holy, you know, the question would be, well, isn't God's name already holy? Well, he's put it on his people and, and we talked earlier about how the revelation of God's name is a risk
0: mm-hmm. because,
2: because it gives us access to him. It's also a risk that he actually puts his name on his people because if they go out, if we go out and live no differently than our pagan neighbors, then nobody is going to know really who Yah- Yahweh is or what he's like. Yeah. So there's a risk associated. His name could be dragged through the mud as it regularly is in the headlines. Right. Every time a Christian leader falls into sin mm. and the head, it's all over the headlines, that's the name of God being dishonored. And so G- when Jesus prays, may your name be honored, yeah. he recognizes that as God's people, we're the ones who actually make that happen mm. by living in obedience to God's covenant commands. So true.
3: Yeah. It's a high
2: yeah. calling. Yes.
0: So with this in mind, right? As we look at our Exodus and we look at the 10 words that the Lord has given us, and especially the second commandment to keep in mind how we bear the name of the Lord, how do mm-hmm. Christians in our modern time look back at this and, and approach the 10 commandments uh, in our context and in our lives? Mm. How do we do that well? And how do we approach the, the rules and the, um, mm. just the words that the Lord has given to us?
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think we rem- we need to regularly remind ourselves that we are rescued by God's grace. We're not earning his favor, um, but that the laws are not a ball and chain. They are God's wise teaching on how to live as his free people. Mm. I think a lot of Christians think that we will have victory in this area if we can just get the Ten Commandments inscribed in in civil law, mm-hmm. if we can get them posted again in our schools. And if we can put up monuments um, that show that it's the foundation of Western law or, or civilization. And I would say, actually my reading of Exodus tells me that the 10 commandments were not just given to everyone They're, They weren't given to all nations. They were given to the covenant people because they were a part of their holy vocation. And so I think we, as Christians should probably be less worried about imposing these commandments on everyone else and more worried about, am I living this out well myself? Am I demonstrating to a watching world who God is? Mm. So true.
1: So good. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for yes. sitting down and talk with us about your incredible book and just the the fresh insight you've given us on the 10 words and, and what it means to bear God's name well.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted that you went through the Ten Commandments of the Church and that you're talking about these things. It's so important.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today on The Stone Table. If you've enjoyed this conversation with our friend Carmen as much as we did, please be sure to rate and subscribe. Also, we would love to hear from you. If you've got any questions or any topics that you would like to hear covered on the show, please feel free to email us at baylife.org. Or you can reach out to us at our brand new Instagram, The Stone Table Podcast. For Baylife Church, I'm Mickey, and this is The Stone Table.